0: You know, when we graciously received this grant from Lilly Endowment, part of the grant's requirements and our desire is that not only the family of the the pastor and the family benefit from the grant, but the congregation also has an opportunity to, to, to benefit from that. So once we received the grant, we began asking ourselves and praying, Lord, how can we best encourage and strengthen ourselves as a congregation through this. And one of the decisions that was made was to bring in a number of preachers from the outside who could give us a value-added experience, an opportunity to hear a little bit different perspective, a little bit different idea. That's where we came up with the one thing, theme of uh, what's the thing on your heart that that, that you are learning from God that you want to be able to share with us. Now, one of the things that BP is doing while he's on a sabbatical is reflecting on where we are at Seven Hills Fellowship and where we're going for the next five to ten years. We've come to our 10th year anniversary, and the elders and BP together are, are dreaming and thinking, where does God have us moving? We, we do have an overall vision. We know we want to be here for the flourishing of Rome and its communities, which involves bringing the gospel in a relevant way, in a culturally sensitive way. But uh, how does that work itself out in detail? We began thinking, who are some pastors we could bring in to hear from who've walked down some of these roads? And almost immediately, one of the first names that came to my mind was Tom Gibbs. I've gotten to know Tom well uh, over the last almost 10 years now through interaction together and we've become friends. We were participated together in a doctoral program and, and, and talked through a lot of different things and it's been a real joy for me to get to know Tom and his wife, Tara, who's also here with us this morning. And then just about a year and a half ago, we began dreaming about the, the need to address some different issues. And one of the issues was the need to address the issue of human sexuality. And Tom's church in San Antonio, Texas, was going to be doing a seminar on this. So about four, uh, four couples went down to San Antonio to visit Redeemer Church in in the city of San Antonio, Texas, to participate in that seminar and also to participate in worship. And as we saw what they were doing and how they were functioning and how they were impacting the city of San Antonio, uh, again, the the thought came to our mind, boy, Tom would be a guy that we want to hear him and hear what he has been learning and growing uh, in their church, which is 15 years old, just a few years older than us, but farther enough down the line to teach us some important things. So we asked him and Tom and Tara graciously said, sure, we'd love to be able to come. So it's a joy for me this morning for the first guest that we have coming to speak to us to introduce you my friend Tom Gibbs from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, Texas.
1: Thank you, Bob. Am I on that working? Good. It's a great privilege to be with you. And uh, to be back in the state of Georgia, my family all come from South Georgia, so it's great to be back in this uh, beautiful state and, and close to the mountains um, of North Georgia, which are beautiful. We honeymoon not far from here uh, when Tara and I were uh, first um, first hitched, so it's good to be back in this area. Um, when Bob asked me uh, to speak on one thing, um, and he explained to me what, uh, what, 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 they were seeking from this sermon series. It didn't take me long to uh, figure out what, what I wanted to share with you. Um, and it's not uh, an extraordinary idea, but it is extraordinary when we live it out. And it's the newness of grace that comes in Jesus Christ. And so I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have your Bible, uh, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Here in the beginning chapters of Mark's Gospel, we see Jesus unfolding the implications of His divine presence, and what He means in coming to this world um, for the world that is gripped in the brokenness of sin. We're going to be looking in verses 13 through 22. Um, I don't know if you're going to put that up there or not. Probably not. Okay, so uh, let us give our attention to God's holy word. He went out again and beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribe of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into new wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. It's God's holy word. Let me pray for us as we begin our time together. Lord God, we thank you for your holy word. We pray that you would speak from it to our hearts and lives, that we would be receivers of your grace and mercy, and that we would also be those who extend that same grace and mercy to our community. I thank you for Seven Hills Fellowship for their witness to the gospel in Rome, and pray that you would bless them. Would you bless Brian and his family as they're away? M- might they be renewed in the grace of your mercy in Christ? And Father, would you send your Spirit to us today, that we might know more of the riches of your grace that are found in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, that word grace is um, it's an attractive word. We, we love the idea of grace because grace means hopeful things, right? Mercy and God's kindness, God's compassion, God's forgiveness, second chances. When we are a receiver of God's grace, we have the hope of new beginnings. But it's also a familiar word. Grace is one of those words that we name churches after. Grace is one of those words that Christians love to talk about. Grace is one of those words, because it's familiar, that we think we've already figured out, and so we move on from it. We put it in the rearview mirror of our lives, and we move on from grace to other things. And because of that, we sometimes forget that grace isn't just something that we hold in our minds, but that God has called us to be not only the receivers of grace, but the extenders of grace. In our community, and that means that the journey of grace has to, has to move beyond. Um, move, move beyond the, the the world of our thoughts, take the journey to our hearts, and then out into our lives. And it's my experience in the church that 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 may be the farthest journey that any of us ever make, from here to here, and then out into the world, and how we live out our faith. Because if we're honest, we, we might rejoice in the gift of grace. We, we might be the, the billboard for grace. We might talk a lot about it. But the world out there, how are they perceiving us in the church? Do they perceive us as being a people of grace? Sadly, that, that's not what the world out there experiences from the church, is it? We know that. There's a recent study by David Kinneman among the Barna Group's research, um, that, that entity. And he wrote a book, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. And, the, and as the title suggests, it's about millennials, which many of you are millennials. And it's about um, the attitudes of non-Christian millennials uh, that, that they have about the church, that they have about Christians. And as you know, many of you know that sexuality is sort of the Geiger counter of how the culture, and particularly millennials, are perceiving uh, the, the, the church today, how they're perceiving Christians today. And most see Christians not as gracious, but as judgmental, as anti-gay, in fact. These, is, these are the, the statistics that David Kinneman found in his research as he speaks about what millennials who are not believers think about Christians. This is the first thing that comes to their mind. Ninety-one percent think Christianity means that you're anti-homosexual. Eighty-seven percent means that Christianity is that you're judgmental. Eighty-five percent say that Christians, it means that you're hypocritical. Seventy percent say that it means that you're insensitive to others. I don't think Grace made the list. Why is that? It's a tragedy, isn't it? Because grace is at the top of the list for most of us. I bet most of us would would treasure and cherish that we are a people of grace, and yet the world out there isn't perceiving us as being a people of grace. Now those numbers are disappointing, but but I don't think they should surprise us. I don't think that's necessarily newsworthy. Because the truth is, we have advanced degrees in all of these things that characterize, well, the church. I mean, when has the church not ever been a place where we struggle with hypocrisy? When has the church ever not been a place where we struggled with judgmentalism? When has the church not ever been a place where we struggled with separatism? We have advanced degrees in such things. We don't just um, hear that re- refrain from the non-believing world. We say that about each other in our churches. right? This is h- how we talk. And so what I want to suggest to you that would be truly newsworthy is not listening to that refrain from our culture, but it's this refrain. What if we were living in a place where sinners were irresistibly drawn to righteousness? That would be newsworthy. What would it be like if we were in a place where broken people were finding a home in places like Seven Hills? That would be worth something writing about. That would be something significant. That would be something that would be different. And that's what makes this passage from Mark chapter 2 so important for us. Because that was happening to Jesus. He was becoming that place where broken people were finding a home, where, where outcasts were being drawn back to righteousness. Jesus didn't come to reify the old ways of external righteousness, but he came to usher in a new way, he came to usher in a new world, a new day of grace that came with him. That's what Jesus' presence meant, really. His presence meant that a new day had begun, a day of grace. And he came not only to lead others to that day of grace, but that we might live into the newness of that day too. And we might be his carriers of grace in this world. And so that's the one thing that I think we and the church have to become, not just those who receive grace, but those who are carriers of that grace to our culture. To live into the newness of grace that comes in Jesus Christ. And in our passage, Jesus really does two simple things. He paints three pictures, images, of what the newness of grace looks like. Just three images. And then he explains the implications of them for our lives and for God's people. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Talk about those images, try to understand them, and then what are the implications um, for the church and for our lives today. First of all, what's new about the grace that Jesus brings? Three images. The first one here is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom that cannot be denied. He speaks about being this bridegroom in response um, to those who were following Jesus' ministry, and they were perplexed why Jesus didn't fast, his disciples didn't fast, when John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples fasted, when the disciples of the Pharisees fasted. um, And they were perplexed, you know, why don't you fast? And in one sense, Jesus' response could, could have been, well, the law of Moses only requires that we fast one day a year, the day of atonement. But John's disciples fasted regularly. The Pharisees' disciples fasted regularly because it was a sign or a show of their demonstration of piety. It was the way that they showed their devotion to God. And so they thought, well, Jesus, you should be fasting too. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but you don't? And Jesus' response is telling, right? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, those who were listening to Jesus wouldn't have understood the full messianic implications of what Jesus was saying, but they got the picture. They understood what Jesus was telling them, that he was comparing himself to the bridegroom at his wedding feast, and in those days, a wedding wasn't just a day-long affair. It was a week-long celebration. And so, it would have been unheard of, unthinkable. For, for a guest of the bridegroom can come to this week of celebration and refrain from the celebration. That Jesus is saying, the bridegroom is here. J- Jesus is Emmanuel, the with us God, who is the bridegroom. And because the, well, his presence has arrived, the celebration cannot be denied. If the bridegroom is here, it's not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting, that's the first image, the, the bridegroom that cannot be denied. The second image is the new cloth that cannot patch up the old. Look what he says in verse 21. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. He does. The patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now, even in our modern technological world, this image makes sense to us, right? Because why would we repair an old garment with an unshrunk, unwashed piece of, piece of cloth? Because if we did and we washed it, then that unshrunk piece of cloth would shrink. And then it would make up bigger tear in the garment that we had tried to repair. It would make an even more damaged garment. And what Jesus is saying with this image is that he is the new cloth that cannot patch up the old. That, that he cannot simply... Patch up what is distorted and broken about Judaism. But something new has to begin with him. Now, to be sure, Jesus isn't saying that he's throwing Judaism entirely out. He tells us elsewhere that he has come to fulfill all of the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets. What he's saying is that the the practices, the distortions, the ways in which Judaism had gotten confused, Jesus had said it's become like an old garment that can't be repaired. It has to be thrown out. Because something entirely new has come with me. He's the new cloth that cannot repair the old. He's the bridegroom that cannot be denied. And then thirdly, he's the new wine that old wineskins cannot contain what he says in verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, in those days, they didn't bottle their wine. They didn't box their wine. They skinned it. What they would do is they'd take a goat and slaughter the animal and and, and tan Um, the leather and carefully prepare it to hold the new wine. And because the skin was new and the wine was new, as it fermented, the gases expanded, the skin of the animal would also expand because of its elasticity. So it held the wine. It was a perfect instrument for holding the, the life that is in the wine. But it's for that reason why an old skin couldn't hold new wine. Because as the new wine would go into the old wineskin, the pressures would rise. And the life in the skin had, had long since passed until it would burst the skin and there rupture the skin and, and, and lose the wine. Jesus is the new wine. It can't be poured into the old skins because they aren't alive anymore. Something new has to come. Something new has come. It cannot be denied. He cannot be denied. He's the new cloth that cannot repair the old. He's the new wine that that no longer fits the old ways. That's what he's telling us about his grace. It is entirely and wonderfully new. Something new has begun with Christ. And he's saying, I can't just patch up what is broken. Something new is at work in my ministry. So what are the implications? How does that work itself out into our lives? And we see that lived out in the way that Jesus manifests his ministry with those around him, with the disciples, with the crowds, with the Pharisees. And the first thing he's telling us as we go back to verses 13 through 16 is this. The newness of grace that's begun with Jesus Christ means that rather than separating from sinners we have to draw near to them. But rather than separating from sinners, we have to draw near to them because Jesus wasn't just feasting with His disciples instead of fasting. He was feasting with sinners. Right? That's the context of Jesus sharing um, these images. The Pharisees were confused about why He sits down with sinners. Why does He sit down with tax collectors? And even calling a tax collector, Matthew, Mark calls him Levi in this passage. Jesus is showing us something of the kingdom of God. He's saying that his grace that he brings is about welcoming the most broken and those who are most outcast from our society unto him and to understand how radical this would have been for Jesus and His disciples, we have to understand something of why tax collectors were so hated in the ancient world. And a good image for us to th- think about what a tax collector was, is they were a toll booth collector that worked for the Romans. And because the taxation system wasn't carefully regulated, those who were awarded the taxation um, um, for a certain region by the Romans, that they would bid this process out, and whoever was the highest bidder got the taxation for that region. And then a tax collector would set up their booths, and they would carry out their work. And again, because it wasn't carefully regulated, they would often extort higher fees and pocket the money for themselves. And so tax collectors were hated. They were hated both because they worked for the Romans and they were hated because they extorted money from their from their fellow people from their fellow man, and so hate so hated were tax collectors in the ancient world. If a Jew became a tax collector, they were immediately disowned from the synagogue. They were immediately disowned from their family. And guess who Jesus calls to be one of his disciples? One of those guys. He calls Matthew, calls Levi a tax collector, an enemy those whom the Pharisees would have never sat down with, those whom even a regular religious person would have never sat down with. And Jesus is saying, this is what my kingdom is like. This is the place where the social outcasts and the worst of sinners find a home. And Jesus is showing us what we have to do. If we're going to be faithful to His kingdom in this world, we have to draw near to sinners rather than separate from them. Because how will they hear us? How will they know the story of grace if the story of grace just remains up here and it doesn't get fleshed out into our lives? You know, in San Antonio, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, we're thinking about this question. We've been thinking about this question. And how can we not also think about this question as it applies to the racial tensions in our society, black and white, Latino and white, as we think about that tension erupting into violence all across our nation. And I was particularly struck by the wisdom of, of the presiding judge, Richard Weber, in the Michael Brown case in Ferguson, Missouri. And when the white officer um, who was a part of that, um, that situation, when he was exonerated by the grand jury of any wrongdoing, um, Judge Weber was excoriated in the press that some of you probably remember the things that were said about him, not only in the press, but by the Black Lives Matter movement, by the Michael Brown family. And Judge Weber was surprised. How could they say such things about him? How could they, how could they accuse him of being unjust and, and insensitive to their concerns? It took him some time begin to make sense of what was happening all around him. And and he came to a new understanding. This is what he said uh, subsequent to the revelation of the grand jury. He said, I came to understand that people can't hear the facts until they know that you care. People cannot understand the facts until they know that you care. I had to begin with compassion and understanding with sympathy for their fear before I could gently lead them to consider the facts of the case. I wonder about us as Christians. And what do people hear from us? Do they just hear the facts of Christianity? Do they just hear the truth of Christianity? Or do they know that we care? Have we come to listen to their story sufficiently enough to know that we care about where they are in their brokenness? How can we expect to make an impact in the lives of the people of this world until this world knows that we care about its brokenness? We can't. We can't separate and truly offer hope. It just doesn't work that way. We we have to join Jesus in his ministry to the outcasts. That's what it means to live in the newness of grace that Jesus brings in this world. Stop separating from sinners and draw near to them, gather where they gather, be where they are. That's why I love that Seven Hills Fellowship is chosen to be right here on Broad Street, right in the middle of the city, right as a part of everything that's happening in Rome, not condoning everything, but not giving this stance of condemnation either. That's a glorious picture of the gospel. That's the first thing. We have to draw near to sinners rather than separating from them. And just one more illustration of how this is working out at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Um, We've joined together with a ministry in our community called Lavish, and several of our women are a part of this ministry, and they're going into adult entertainment establishments to minister to the women who participate in those establishments And maybe you know the statistics, but 90% of the women who work in those establishments have experienced sexual abuse at a point in their life. And our ladies are going into these places, bringing just a small hospitable gift, inviting these ladies to be a part of a Bible study, a meal, and to know that there's a safe place for them if they want to talk about what a new future, a different future might look like. But it's a glorious picture of the gospel. We're going... Where Jesus goes, not separating ourselves from those places, from the worst of those places, that's the call of the newness of grace in our culture today. That's the first thing. The second one is rather than hiding our sin, we have to acknowledge it so that we might be healed. You know, Jesus tells us an implication of drawing near to the sinners is he's telling us about how he heals sin. And what sin really is, um, what what are the implications of it? Because many of us think of sin like like the way we catch the flu, that if we associate with sinful people, then somehow we're going to catch it. It's going to get on us. Um, And we make much of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that bad company corrupts good morals. And so we're going to stay away from all of the bad people in the world so that I don't get corrupted by that sin. And yet Jesus is telling us that sin is far more um, endemic, problematic, problematic. deeply situated into the human person that, that we cannot cure it by making superficial changes in our lifestyle or by changing the group that I associate with us. No, sin is so deeply rooted in each one of our lives that it has to be addressed from the inside out. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who can heal sin. I'm the only one who can heal the sin wound that um, it inhabits each person's heart. And look what he says, verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so what's his point? As long as we hide our sin, as long as we leave it under the cover of darkness and pretend that we're righteous, then we'll never be healed. That's what the Pharisees were doing, right? They were hiding their sin in the light of their religious devotion. And that's the temptation of the churches. and we, we tend to throw stones at those rebellious ones who are sinning by leaning into the darkness. But how are we hiding in the light? Leaning into our righteousness. Leaning into our um, religious devotion in ways that keep Jesus at arm's length. Flannery O'Connor once says, The way to avoid Jesus... Just avoid sin. Just don't talk about it. Don't act like you have it. Don't don't acknowledge its presence in your life. and, and, And guess what? Jesus will stay far, far away from you. But if we go there, the one benefit of going there is that's where Jesus is. That's where he goes. That's his mission, to heal the sin sick of this world. And so we have to bring it out of the darkness. We have to stop hiding it so that Jesus can bring his new and life-giving power to those places. But the temptation to hide is powerful. I'll never forget my daughter, three years old. She's now finished her freshman year at Baylor University. But when she was three, at her three-year-old birthday party, she had been given um, some chocolate coins that were wrapped up in this shiny aluminum foil, and those coins were stuck into this um, uh, plastic netting. And when she saw those coins at her birthday party, all she could think about um, was that she wanted to eat those coins. Uh, She wanted to eat that chocolate. Uh, but she had to have a birthday party. And and so as the party kind of went on and people began to leave, we noticed that Anna Catherine had disappeared, and we didn't know where she was. And so we went looking all over the house for our little girl, and we found her in her cardboard playhouse in a room hiding, and she had literally eaten her way through the plastic netting and through the 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 shiny aluminum foil to get to the, the those chocolate coins and it didn't matter that it was her birthday party it didn't matter that she was all dressed up she had to get to what she wanted and you know that's 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 how sin operates in our lives isn't it it doesn't matter how much we dress ourselves up spiritually and religiously doesn't matter how many quiet times we have and prayer meetings we go to. doesn't matter how much biblical knowledge that we st- store away, how much theological acumen we have. There's an operative power at work in our lives, and we want to hide. And that's what has to come out in the open, that it can be healed. And if it is not brought out into the open, we will not be healed. If it is not brought to the feet of Jesus, we will not change. Because His grace will not go to that place that grace can only heal. And that's the sin wound in each one of our hearts. And so that's the the next implication. Not only do we have to stop resisting sinners and draw near to them, we have to stop acting like we're not sinners. We have to stop acting like the sin wound hasn't deeply affected each one of us. And we've got to ourselves come to Jesus as those who desperately need a Savior. That's the second thing. What would it look like to the people in Rome, Georgia, if every one of us in this room stopped pretending like we weren't broken to? That the problem wasn't just out there. But, but we also share in the wounding and brokenness of this world. That's, that's what our culture is longing to hear from the church. That we too know the brokenness of this world. Jack Miller said it well. Get low. Get low. Jesus' grace will meet you there. Are we getting low? Because that's where Jesus is. That's where his grace meets us. That, that's the second implication. Stop hiding our sin. The first implication, stop, uh, s- stop re- resisting sinners. And the third one is rather than being sorrowful, let's celebrate. That, that may seem counterintuitive with all of this conversation about the brokenness of this world, but part of knowing Jesus and the victory of His grace, it means that we can celebrate even in the presence of sin, even in the brokenness of this world, that we have hope. I mean, that's what the Pharisees couldn't understand. That's what even John's disciples couldn't understand. How could you you be celebrating and feasting in the midst of a broken world? This is a time for fasting. And just like, no. No, when I'm here, the victory of my grace is present. Even when it hasn't arrived in all of its fullness. And for that reason, we can celebrate now. Because of what we have in Christ. One of the things we've done at Redeemer Presbyterian Church is throw lots of parties. Um, And and part of the reason why we throw lots of parties is because I'm one of those Christians who's tempted to be sorrowful over all the burdens and brokenness and sin in this world. And, And when we planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church, um, the, the assessors at the, at the church planning assessment center um, uh, exhorted me that I needed to celebrate what God was doing. And, and we've sought to live into that exhortation throughout the history of our church so that people would know that our church in the middle of San Antonio is a place of celebration, not just somber and sober reflection over the brokenness of this world, but of the hopeful message of grace, that comes in Christ, that means even though we're struggling, even though there is brokenness, even though there is sorrow, that we can celebrate with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so it's not only get low, Jesus' grace will meet you there. Jack Miller also said, cheer up. Cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think. And that's good news, because Jesus' love, God's love for sinners, is bigger than you dared hope. You see, that's that's what we have to that's what we have to know if we're going to celebrate. Yes, the, the 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 burden of our sin is true and real, but in Christ, the offer of His mercy is so so substantial that it overwhelms our grief, so that we might celebrate in the present. With each new member class at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, I say, I say to them, and I remind myself, that the gospel is the only thing that lets us be realistic and hopeful. Most of us are either sort of naively hopeful in that sense that, that if we want to sort of see the sunny side of life, we have to ignore the brokenness of this world. right? We have to close our eyes. And blindly hope. Or we're realistic and pessimistic. Because we see the, um, the tragedy all around our world. We, we see the tragedy in our own community. We see the tragedy in our own heart. And how can we hope if that tragedy is so real and pervasive? And yet the gospel allows us to be absolutely honest about the brokenness of this world. And also absolutely hopeful. Because of the promise and mercy that comes with Jesus' grace in this world. We can, in Christ, cheer up and celebrate. Because with Christ is the time of feasting, not fasting. Okay, so those are the three implications. Not drawing away from sinners, but drawing near to them. Not hiding our sin, but bringing it unto Christ. Not, not being overwhelmed with sorrow and sadness, but celebrating, counterintuitive in the extreme. Another one of my favorite authors is Richard Loveless, who wrote an important book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And toward the end of Richard Lovelace's life, he, he was preaching. And in that lecture, in that sermon, he asked his audience um, a provocative question. He, he said, how many of you here believe that waterfalls can run back? And I wonder if I were to ask you, how many of you believe that waterfalls can run backwards? I know what we would all say. No, they they don't run backwards. And yet somehow, he must have been referring to some place, some moment, some situation where that actually happened, and in fact he was. He went on to explain the extreme tidal fluctuations that happen where the St. John's River which is a substantial river, and it runs into the Bay of Fundy along the Canadian coast of New Brunswick. And there, the incoming tide is so significant that the waterfalls in the St. John's River, as it exits into the Bay of Fundy, are overwhelmed by the incoming tide. And in fact, they flow in reverse. And the tide changes, and the current of the river goes upstream instead of downstream into the Bay of Fundy, into the Atlantic Ocean. And that's what I to suggest to you is what the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is like the ocean tide flowing into our lives and overwhelming our sin and changing the currents of our hearts so that they conform to the purposes of God. Because we are transformed, not by anything that we have done, but by what God has done in us. And when He begins to do that work in us, it flows out of us. We're not just the receivers of grace, but we are His carriers in our cities and communities and culture. And if I could pray something for Seven Hills Fellowship, it's that. That you would be carriers Of the new grace that has come in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your mercy and grace shown to me, shown to us in this room. And remind us that that grace that you have given to us is not not just for us. But it's for those who are not yet here. That your church is for those who have not yet gathered and so we pray that you would make Seven Hills a community of grace that, that is known for this posture of welcome to its community, hospitality and service and sacrifice, that there would be a safe space created for, for the most broken in the community of Rome. And that in this space, they might find your saving grace. And that you might draw near to them, and they might enjoy the, the celebration of your mercy and hope, that's found in your life giving, um, life giving work. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name, Amen.